0: You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Fantastic. We are going to be doing a five week series called We Believe. I'm really excited about this. We're actually going to be looking at the Nicene Creed. Some of you will be really excited by that, and you thought it's about time this church had a bit of orthodoxy and tradition. Some of you will be terrified, thinking, oh no, it's going to get traditional on me. And some of you think, I'm not even sure what a creed is. A creed is not scripture. It's man's gathered thoughts from scripture. And uh, to be honest, I've found a man really helpful in preparing this, a guy called Andrew Wilson. If ever you come across his stuff on the internet, I encourage you to listen, find it in a bookshop, buy it. The Nicene Creed. So what was it then? This was created in a council of churches. Slight history lesson just as we go into an introduction. These church leaders gathered in a place in modern-day Turkey in AD 325. Now, why did they gather? They gathered because Christianity, which started in the book of Acts with, you could say, 120 people gathered in a room that the Holy Spirit came upon them in such power that they go out and they tell so many people about Jesus Christ that there are now millions literally, of believers within the 300-year period right across the Roman Empire. In fact, it's become so influential, the emperor himself has become a believer. The empire is actually in two halves until he unites it in a a battle. You can see this on a map in case you're interested. He brings the East and the West Empire together. And he suddenly says, you know what? We've got to work out what we believe Because it's so easy to well, I think of this and I think... So he says, right, I want to get all these church leaders together and I want you to tell me what are the basic beliefs of Christianity. This then came about, the Nicene Creed, as a result of this. The emperor was Constantine. Uh, It was reviewed, to be honest, about 30 years later. But for the last 1,700 years, Christians of all different traditions have said, we believe this. I thought it was interesting, even event bringing that thing in worship, saying, oh, actually, there's something about the faithfulness and the enduringness of God. And so what I'm going to say is, actually, I would love us, in a moment, to stand and say this. There's something, I think, almost about longevity. I don't know about you, we live in a society where things seem to change all the time, don't they? I thought having orange juice for breakfast was one of my five a day. And now the dentist says, oh, don't brush your teeth afterwards, you just rub in the acid. I think, I, I used to, I ran, okay, I ran a marathon once, let's be honest, I don't want to over exaggerate. And everyone said, eat pasta, eat pasta, eat pasta. And now they say, cut back on the carbs. We sort of live in a society where it just feels like things are changing all the time, doesn't it? I mean, what is truth anymore? But actually, this has been read and believed by Christians for 1,700 years. We believe. And so what I'd love us to do is, and I, I think I'm preaching all five in this series, actually. We will be doing this every single week. So we can speak it with gusto. So let's all speak out. In fact, you sit down so that you can all see it. But let's say together, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. It's powerful stuff, isn't it? I love it when we start speaking about what we believe is truth. The tongue is a very powerful instrument. We can either speak out lies or we can speak out truth, Father. We want to believe your truth, Lord. As we look at this, I pray that you'd speak to us again. What, what do we really believe? I pray as we go into this series of five weeks that it won't. Oh, we're just trying to be better people. We're trying to make the planet a better place. God, fundamentally, it comes about: who do we believe about God? Who do we believe about Jesus Christ? I pray that you'd speak right into our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I do want to go to the Bible. I don't want to preach from a creed. The Bible is the word of God. It says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped. There is something that I believe that the Bible is God's word. And, I, I, you know, as a church, we love. I'm going to have a little plug. You can ask about my career. I'm doing a challenge of the New Testament. How do we find out about the Word of God? How do we get into this? How do we make sure oh, I understand the story and how it applies to me? This is key, I believe, for us as Christians. But I also think there are some passages that are more important than others. Why do I say that? We're going to look at a story. If you've got a Bible, you can follow it. It's in Mark chapter 12. It will also come on the screen. In my Bible, it's called The Greatest Commandment. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four accounts of the life of Jesus. And this is in the account called Mark. Mark chapter 12. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? Jesus could have said, what a stupid question. All scriptures God breathed. But he answered the question. He says this, the most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one, and then there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he'd answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. You see, I believe that, you know, they'd come and say, well, actually, we believe that this is, this is all inspired by God. This is all true. This is, this is all the word of God. I believe that here. There's 66 books. Genesis to Revelation. I believe it's all God's word. It is all inspired. But actually, I think some are more important than others. So I've got an illustration here. If you think about the game of Jenga, and many of you may have played this, a small one, a version at home, the reality is that all of these are made from the same material. All of these are the same size, and all of these are the same shape. And if you've never played it before, you basically, you just got to take some out and see if you could build a tower. And that is true in many respects of the whole Christian faith. We are looking at so many different things, but I would still say that some of them are more foundational than others. Let me take another analogy just for a moment. I think that if you look at the Bible and you look at some Christian doctrine, I would say some would be written in pencil, Some would be written in ink and some would be written in blood. What do I mean by that? Let's look at the pencil ones. So, pencil, these are the kind of practices, doctrines that you would hold most lightly and maybe most loosely. In fact, you can replace some of them as you go along in your Christian life, and it's very easy to get on with others that totally disagree. Let me give you an example. How old is the earth? Oh, some people say, oh, it's millions of years old. And some Christians will say, oh, it's thousands of years old. And I bet if I asked all of you something, oh, I've never even thought about that. But I bet there'd be a lot of different answers, but we all come and worship together. Should children take communion? I mean, Different people would have different takes on that. Is it something that you explain to your children, this is what we're doing? Should Christians fight in a war? Is it Right? Should Christians be total pacifists, or is it okay? Now, the reality is, I would say they're pencil doctrines. In this room, we'd all probably have different opinions on that. That's great, we're a church together. But then what are the ink doctrines? Well, if you think about ink, and you write on a page, you can rub it out, but it often leaves a mark, and it's much harder to erase than others. I can totally respect you as holding a different opinion to me. But actually, within a church, we tend to have ones that are more similar. We believe here that spiritual gifts are for today. Now, there'd be Christians that wouldn't believe that. And they're still brothers and sisters. But actually, we're saying, "Oh no, they're right here for today. And we'd encourage that. And so often, you find the church, we believe in believers' baptism. So if you've never been baptized as a Christian, we'd say, great, come and get baptized. We don't baptize babies. There will be other Christians that would do that. We respect them, we love them, they're brothers and sisters. But you know I say, "Oh, this is ink. We're not sure we're going to practice that way. What about blood doctrines? To me, blood doctrines are those that if something's written in blood, it's almost like it could never be changed. There's something permanent about it. if we're really honest. I was going to say in church history, but it'll be true even today. Some people will die for blood doctrines. give, give, Give me an example. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. To me, that's a blood doctrine. It is foundational. He lived the perfect life, He died on a cross, and He rose again three days later. That's a blood doctrine. He is the only way to God. That's like a a blood doctrine as far as I'm concerned. You think, this is fundamental truth. We might disagree on how you baptize. That's fine. But if we disagree on blood doctrines, I'm not sure that we could be Christians together. So if I went back, I guess you could have a look at this. I guess what I'm really trying to say is... This one is a foundational doctrine... And if I take this bit out, the whole lot crumbles. I can adjust some of the others and just keep... Sorry about that if I upset the baby. I can adjust some of the doctrines. You see, when you mess around with doctrines, you do upset people. <laughs> the reality is I could adjust some doctrines and it's fine. We just build it out. But I take out a foundational one and everything Crumbles. I would say the five weeks that we're going to look at now are foundational doctrines. The five things that we're going to look at through this creed are foundational from the Bible. What do we believe? The first one is this. We believe in one God. It's interesting. Even Jesus, you could say, was, was making a creed. I don't want to overstretch it, but he took something from Leviticus and he took something from Deuteronomy and answered one question. It's almost like systematically understanding Scripture and bringing it together. So one of the bits of the answer came from Deuteronomy 6, one came from Leviticus 19. And and basically he was saying this, the Lord is one, there is one God. Now, it's funny because today society... That might not seem such a radical thing to say. Listen to me very carefully. There are seven people on the planet, seven billion people on the planet. If you were to include Jews, Muslims and Christians I'm not saying they're all arguing for the same thing, but I would say that all of them believe in one God. So therefore, actually today it doesn't seem that radical to say one God. And in fact, of the other three billion, half of them would probably say there's no God. And they're even thinking about one. There's probably only one and a half billion people on the world today that would say there's many gods. But actually, that was very, very different when Jesus was bringing this teaching. The Bible was bringing something very radical. They were in a society where there was a plurality of gods. In fact, one of the things that the whole Bible was, no, there is only one God. Because society thought, oh yeah, there's lots of gods. In those days, you might have uh, the sun god, or you might have a crop god, or you might have a fertility god. In fact, if you went to war with somebody, and they won, you'd have to basically accept their god as bigger than your god. So you might just add them in, and you could almost have a collection of gods. That's how things happened. And yet, when Moses wrote these words in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, he was clearly Oh, those, oh, That would have been really radical because we know, don't we, about Moses busting the people out of Egypt and we know all those plagues and actually we know those plagues were demonstration that the one God was greater than all the varied gods of Egypt. Oh, so this theme has been running through. There is one God. The prophet Isaiah, speaking on God's voice, you know, it's almost like God's mouthpiece, to the people of God says this, To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? Who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them forth? Because of his great power and mighty strength. It's almost saying that the people of God, I want you to cling. There is one God. This wasn't always easy. We know in the book of Daniel, don't we, that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego... And they basically said, the king says, look, I've taken you over. His whole mindset was now you bow down to my God. I'll put a statue up. He puts a gold statue up. He says, look, I don't mind you believing what you believe, but you still bow down to my God. Because you have many gods, is what they thought. But the three people shouted at me and said, no, no, we can't do that. He said, well, if you don't do it, I'm not going to be very nice to you. I'm going to throw you into this fiery furnace. And they said, we still can't do it. Because there was a theme in the Old Testament that actually there is one God and worship him alone. Things went wrong when they took on other gods. King Ahab wanted to worship God and Baal and said, come on, let's just stick him in here as well. Even King Solomon, who built the temple, who created, you know, you could say this magnificent building for sacrifice and worship. He ended up building other places for his foreign wives and ended his life more cynical than he began. The Bible clearly says there is one God. And this is where it gets very confusing. So I've made lots of notes, and I'll probably have to look at them quite carefully. There is one God, but the one God is three persons. In the Old Testament, we're clearly presented with this picture that God is plural. So in Genesis, Genesis, the first book of the Bible, Genesis that means beginning, it tells us about creation. God said, Let us. Oh, wow. I thought Jesus only came at the beginning of the New Testament, didn't he? (laughs) I mean, he's a baby born in the manger. We all know that at the beginning of the Gospels. Oh, let us make them in our image. So there was a sense right from the creation of the plurality of God. In fact, in Isaiah, there's this great prophecy. And if you know anything, it's actually in Isaiah chapter 6. And we think maybe it was at the beginning of the book, but it's just the way it sort of brought the picture. Isaiah has this vision of God. And he gets undone. And he says, oh God, you're incredible. And then God touches him with a coal, an angel does. And he says, wow, you've purified me. And then there's this... this Invitation. Who will go for us? So they understood something of plurality in the Old Testament. God is one, but God is not one. How do we we get our minds around? In fact, many would say one of the clearest pictures of this was in the New Testament with the baptism of Jesus Christ. It says in Matthew 3, as Jesus was baptised, he went up out of the water At that moment, heaven opened, the Spirit of God descended like a dove, and a voice from heaven saying, This is my Son whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. Now, there have been many different analogies for how do we understand the Trinity, the triunity of God. And I haven't got time to try and explain them all this morning. What I believe is the Bible teaches this. God is three persons... Each person is fully God, and there is only one God. (laughs) And and I used to read Winnie the Pooh to my children. (laughs) I'm a bear with a very small brain, was one of his lines. And in many respects, when it comes to trying to grapple with an infinite God, I, I cannot claim to understand it all. Now, sometimes that just causes me to want to worship him. And sometimes it causes me to want to study more. And you think, I was reading a book called Systematic Theology this week by a guy called Wayne Grudem, and you think, oh, help me try and get into this truth. And he had four different analogies and pictures, and I thought, oh, if I could share those on Sunday, they would think I was really bright. And then most that would come would think he took that one out of a book. I mean, it's it's, it's a hard thing to grapple. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't grapple with these things. I think we should. It helps us understand who God is. But today, what do I want to focus on? I want to focus on this. Um, God is one, but what kind of one God is he? It says, I am Father Almighty. This is is the, the thing we take from the Creed, and this we know is true right throughout the Bible. God is revealed to us as Father Almighty. We know, don't we, Jesus tells us to pray. Our Father in heaven. In fact, you know, there's loads of illustrations of the Father of God. It's wonderful, even this morning, we know we come to God as our Father. I would have uh, become a father for the first time 23 years ago this week. I wasn't always a father, but there was a moment I became one. But the Creed says that he was the father to Jesus, which means he was the father before creation occurred. So therefore, fatherhood is in his nature, not just an activity that's happened to him. For me, I wasn't born a father. I'd become one, and hopefully I'm learning to get a better and better one. But with God, he was a father from the beginning. Because we believe in a trinity, because we believe in three in one, it was his very nature. I guess this is partly why I was trying to say, even though Muslims and Jews would all believe in one, I think that makes us very different to Muslims. 33 of the names of Allah were not possible before humans existed. Because if there is only one, who could you be merciful or compassionate to? But actually, the very call of being a father was possible because he existed in Trinity before creation occurred. Oh, wow. You can see why, can't you, that suddenly this creed becomes such an important thing. Throughout the New Testament, they love this sense of he was the father of Jesus. Now, people have then misunderstood what it means about the Son of God and was he created. I think you can see in Scripture In fact, the creed was answering that. So one of the reasons the creed came about, to be totally honest, is there was a bishop and there was a deacon that had different views on Jesus Christ. One of them thought Jesus had been eternal, and one of them thought Jesus had just been born. And so that was part of the thing they were trying to answer through the creed. And the answer was no, actually, Jesus was there eternally. God was the eternal father. It says in 2 Corinthians, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, if I go back to that baptism passage, we see there how much the Father loves the Son. And he's always loved him. You see, the baptism of Jesus Christ was, we think, at the age 30. We believed before this time that Jesus had been a carpenter. Literally making chairs, tables, window frames. He'd done all that kind of stuff. And he gets baptised, and the Father so delights in him that it's almost like he cannot help but shout from heaven, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. It's just an amazing picture, isn't it? Well then, when we get adopted into the family, we're adopted into that relationship. Adoption is that picture that we are now in Christ. And the Father cannot help but shout over us this morning, that's my son in whom I'm well pleased. But the creed doesn't just refer to him as Father. The creed refers to him as Father Almighty. It goes on, doesn't it? It says that God is Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. That means God is sovereign. It means God is powerful. It even describes the God who made everything visible. Rocks, trees, oceans, mountains, bananas. Everything that's visible, God made. The the creed also says, and the Bible would say this as well, he's the God of the invisible. The God of the atom and the electron. The God of the mobile phone signal. The God of the human soul. So therefore, what this creed is saying is he is a dad without limits. You see, if God was just almighty, he could do anything, but he might not have the heart to love you. He's almighty. If God was just a father, he might love you, but not have the power to do anything about it. But by this creed, what it says is if we want to understand who God is, we've got to understand he's Father Almighty, which means he loves you, he wants to save you, he will save you. Because that's the powerful God that we come before. I believe, we believe, is what we're looking at, that God is the source of all, that he's the Father of Jesus, that he is the only one. Why is this series going to be so important? My first thing is this. Belief affects behaviour. So if we really understand what we believe, that will affect our behaviour. Our danger is that so often we want to change behaviour more than we want to change belief. You know what I'm saying we all kind of turn up and you know, even this morning, if you're visiting here, you're very welcome. And you might think, oh do they expect you to clap here, I'm going to have to start clapping. And that's a behavior. The belief is he's worthy of our praise and we worship him with our bodies. But so often we we jump instead to thinking about behavior. And what we're trying to say is, what do we believe? If I honestly believe there's only one God, he is Father Almighty, that will impact how I behave. You see, Mark 12, when Jesus was talking to this guy, the most important one Jesus answered is this the Lord our God is one it's almost like Jesus then doesn't take a breath because what does he follow straight on the back of that love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind and with all your strength you see what you believe affects how you behave and so even you know when it comes to oh, how do you handle your money how do you handle your time what you believe will infect everything who do you believe God is I'm sorry to say that through personal experience, I'm aware that the older you get, the more cynical it's easy to become. You get disappointed. You thought something was going to happen, it didn't quite happen. You prayed for something, and it didn't occur the way you wanted. I would like to think, whatever our age that we will come back to this truth encounter and it will change us. And that we'll no longer be those that you think, oh, well, the the young, they're just enthusiastic. John Jackson, who I know, is 85. Somebody may be able to pip him. Let me know by the end of the meeting if you are 86 or above. But I'd love to think that when we're all 85, we'll all still be believing. And we'll still be saying, come on, I want to go in faith for God. I want to trust God. My prayer is that you will believe more in God, for God, and through God at the end of this year than the beginning. My belief is that as we come to this, and some of you, you're in the midst of a difficult trial right now, and you think, we lift up our eyes and we say, we believe this is the God that we believe in. Father, we say that right now. God, we, we do. We want to say we believe. We believe in one God. We believe in the God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. And we're going to look at the Son next week. We want to be blown away by who you are. Forgive us when we've believed in ourselves more than we've believed in you. Forgive us, oh God. When we tell our kids, oh, you can be the president. You can be anything you like. We're so confident in ourselves. And we have so little confidence in you. I pray as we look at this creed, as we look at the scriptures behind it, that you would just excite us again with who you are. And that it would change us and that we'd be a people of faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.